Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. All right, everyone, welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host. I'm also the founder of Novus Mindful Life Institute Family Counseling and Recovery Center in Long Beach, California. If you or anyone you know is struggling with any of life's challenges, please reach out to us. You can find more information about us at theaddictedmind.com forward slash help. Also, once again, if you would like to share your wisdom, go to theaddictedmind.com. There's a tab on the side that says share your story. There you can send us an audio clip, about 90 seconds, of a piece of wisdom that you would like to offer others who may be out there still struggling or even family members who are struggling, a piece of wisdom that you would like to share. I'd love to hear it. And hopefully we can feature some of these clips on the Addicted Mind podcast. And I think that would be so helpful to so many to hear from everyone out there. Also, if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes or share the podcast with a friend or someone you think would benefit. Also, don't forget, join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast and click join and I'll see you there. Okay, we are on to episode 78 and my guest today is Maureen Stanton and she is the author of the memoir, Body Leaping Backwards, a memoir of a delinquent girlhood. And I really enjoyed this interview. I was so looking forward to talking to Maureen after reading the book. And I actually finished the book the day before I did the interview with Maureen and was really blown away by it. And it spoke so eloquently to my own experience of growing up and drug use and alcohol use and just that adolescent, oh, I guess I'd call it despair, sadness, angst. And she captures it so well in her book. And it's such a great message for young kids out there today who might be struggling or to parents who want to understand them and maybe what they're going through. So I was so happy to have her on the podcast. And I think you're going to enjoy this interview as well. So let's go ahead and start it. All right, everybody, welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. 
My guest today is Maureen Stanton, and she's the author of the book, Body Leaping Backwards, A Memoir of a Delinquent Girlhood. Maureen, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored to be on your show. Awesome. So I have a lot of questions. I have to say, I loved your book. I just finished it yesterday. And I have to say, it resonated so much with me and my own journey and how you captured your, oh, I don't know, that feeling of that childhood was just astounding. So my first question is, how did you decide to write this or how did this come to be? Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate that you read the book and thanks for your generous comments about it. This is a book that I have been writing for literally 40 years but I was always you know, I was always avoiding actually taking it to the point of getting published because there was shame in there for me about some of the things that I had done. And it's not just, you know, the drugs and the partying and the, you know, angel dust and PCP, but you know, when you've lost yourself that way, you're doing things you, you wouldn't or- ordinarily do, like steal and vandalism and things like that. So it was difficult to go back and face that. I knew that I would someday. And in 2014, when I started writing the book, my dad had passed away. I didn't even make the connection. I just started writing the book that fall, and I'm thinking, oh, this is why I'm finally thinking, oh, let me work on this project, because I wouldn't have wanted him to feel bad and guilty and ashamed. You know, he did the best he could. So, but what I wanted to do with this book, why I wanted to tell this story that happened so long ago, is that I do think it resonates today, because it's a teenager. And there's certain things that happen in teenagehood that even though the specifics are different, say, in my teenhood in the 1970s, there are things that are really relevant. Like, for example, trying to figure out who you are, trying to figure out what your values are, moving away from your parents, finding out what your passions are, who your friends are, figuring out your whole body and all that kind of stuff. And so for me, that was a time of great anxiousness and and sadness and confusion. And I turned to drugs to to self-medicate, basically. And I pretty much say that my 10th and 11th grade experiences in high school were, you know, not very useful. They were just filled with, with escaping, really. Right. And you, you, you know, as I was reading the book and you're, I want to say the character, but it's not really care. It's you, <laughs> but the girl in there, you know, how her life starts to, you know, you start to build this, I guess I just say this picture of this girl going through her childhood and then... I guess the divorce happens and that was a profound moment for you. And then it sounds like you started to drift away or disappear. Mm -hmm. I think I wanted to disappear. You know, when I think about what the drug that I did was angel dust, it was very prominent in the seventies and it's still around today, of course, but it doesn't get a lot of attention in the opioid crisis, but angel dust is a dissociative anesthetic. So what I wanted to do, I started having feelings of self-doubt, a lack of self-confidence, and even to the point of self-loathing. And so a dissociative anesthetic both numbed me and it dissociated me from myself. I didn't have to think of those things that teenagers have to think about, such as being self-conscious, being anxious, having social phobias, losing that confidence, finding your way. And, you know, if you come from a family like mine, which I had a good family, and then my parents divorced and we had a lot of kids. And so my mother was back at work and my dad wasn't around. And so we were just on our own. Without that guidance, it was just for me to numb the sort of uncomfortableness and sadness and pain even of teenagehood that seemed to be the perfect drug that was just around then. Right. And it sounds like you really 
captured it well, that feeling that a lot of, this is how I think a lot of kids start using drugs as a way to get away from that sadness, the loneliness, the unsuredness, the isolation, which then leads to that kind of self-loathing like you talked about and you captured it so well. It definitely resonated with me because it's almost like in some ways like my childhood too, except I wasn't using PCP. I was using like alcohol and stuff like that, but got help early and was able to kind of find my way through it. But what really resonated me with me was the feeling that you created. And I wondered if you could kind of talk about that, that emptiness or... Yeah, it, you know, because this happened in the 70s, and I'm now in my 50s, my late 50s, I had my diaries from the time. And when I, from the time I was starting to do drugs, from the time I, before I did drugs, and the time I started doing drugs and started really getting, feeling that despair, I was, when I read the diary straight through, it overcame me. I really felt once again, like this 15 year old girl who was, you know, out in the parking lot at school, self-conscious, afraid, not cool. There's the cool kids over there, you know, feeling like my acne and my whatever, you know, all those things, you know, you had going on as a teenager. I really felt that again now presently. So I was able to convey that I think on the page because I really had those diaries that where that was really recorded. And I think that, you know, some kids, I think, do better, especially with guidance. But there's a lot of kids that I think start becoming drug users or drinking or poly drug users during those fraught years between childhood and adulthood. I think of it as like, I think of a bridge, you know, crossing a certain sort of, you know, treacherous terrain, all the things you have to do in teenagehood, all, you know, there's peer pressure as well. And, you know, whatever the circumstances are of the culture at the time, now we have you know, social media and smartphones to escape with, and teenagers do. Uh, back then, we had marijuana, drinking. The drinking age was 18. It was so easy to get alcohol. We would stand behind the liquor store and ask anybody to go buy us, you know, and they would. We never got turned down. We had 100%, you know, success rate. So, you know, things were different. So whatever the circumstances are of the time, if you're a kid that's looking, that's in any way having some kind of psychic pain and you're looking for something, there's going to be something out there, especially if you have no guidance, especially if not someone's not watching you carefully, whether it's school or counselors or, or parents or older siblings even. Right. And what I love about your book is that it really captures that. And it's kind of, it has this feeling of, to me, when I read it, it's kind of slowly building but really, when I think about it as a teenager, that's only a couple of years. It happens, you know, when you look back, it happens so fast. But at the time, it seems so slow and long. And I think that's why maybe people miss it a lot, because, you know, naturally, we expect teenagers to withdraw, to start not talking to their parents and sharing things, to be a little moody and weird and, you know, me crying or screaming or shouting or whatever, you know, a little dramatic. We expect that. But to associate that with whether kids are doing drugs, I think might be tricky for parents, or at least it was back then. But yeah, it's, you know, it started with sort of drinking on weekends with a whole lot of kids. You know, marijuana came in and then, oh, next thing, you know, here's, try this, this angel dust. And somebody five years older, my friend's older brothers who introduced us to that, it was in a joint like marijuana and we smoked it. And so it seemed very similar. And there weren't any warnings out there when I started it. I think society caught on in the later 70s about that drug, but there were no warnings that this was, you know, a terrible drug. I mean, I have this one diary entry that I actually did put in the book, which was, you know, got dusted away last night and, you know, dust proves up your brain cells, but, you know, it feels heavy, you know, whatever. Whatever the language was at the time, it's like there's a part of me that knew it screwed up my brain cells. Another part of it is like, oh, this is floaty and cool. So that's the psychology of someone who's 15 or 14. 
16, whatever those tender ages are. Right. And at the time, how alone you can feel in it. Yeah. And I mean, I think that, you know, I had a lot of siblings and I had six siblings and I had friends, but there's just an essential loneliness, I think, for teenagers because you don't know who you are yet and you're not yet comfortable in your own company. You know, I didn't figure out for a long time that it was better to stay home alone and entertain myself and be with my thoughts than to be with friends who were also self-destructive and therefore, you know, bringing me down as well. We were bringing each other down. I'm not blaming my friends. We're all, all the same. But I remember as a kid, I, was, I loved being in my own mind. I loved thinking, imagining, dreaming, staring up at the sky, reading. But as a teenager, I lost that comfort with myself and that sense of being with myself. And, you know, as you kind of write in your book, it starts to, it sounds like it starts to get harder and more difficult and the loneliness gets and the pain and the psychic pain just kind of increases and you, your usage goes up and really you're at this point where it's almost like you're just going along. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think if you start doing a drug like angel dust or whatever kind of pleasure drug that helps you escape you know, you're escaping and that feels good. You're not feeling much. You're just getting high and escaping. But there's a cumulative effect where you lose who you are. I gave up things that I loved. I gave up sports. I gave up learning because I didn't go to class. I almost failed out of 11th grade. I gave up, you know, all the things that I loved doing, playing games, art, nature. All I did was go out and get high. And so I literally erased myself and lost who I was. I mean, if who we are is defined by our passions and our interests, you know, I gave that up for getting high. And so the cumulative effect of that over a period of a couple of years, you know, was that I was just empty and despairing, that I finally had a despair so overwhelming that I knew I needed to ask for help. Right. Tell me a little bit too about the shame. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the shame, you know, I'm ashamed at taking the drugs, but because I was lost myself and I'd lost my way and was doing all those drugs, the sh my shame comes more in the things that I did while I was high, while I was kind of wayward, while I was hanging around with other kids that were, you know, delinquent. I put that in my subtitle, delinquent, because if you look at the definition of a juvenile delinquent, stuff we did was worse than what people conceive of as a juvenile delinquent. And I wanted to kind of own that because I think our culture thinks of that as inner city kids or, you know, his, minority kids, basically, you know, and white suburban kids obviously offend at the same rate across demographics. So, you know, so the shame was about stealing things and not just shoplifting, which like everybody did in the 70s, basically. But, you know, we broke into a house where these two old ladies lived to try and steal things. That's probably the worst thing that makes, I mean, to this day, I feel bad about that. I, I live alone and I feel like if somebody was, a, you know, wandering out of my house, I'd be absolutely terrified and I would lose something significant about my sense of safety in the world. So that's the worst thing, you know, vandalizing, setting fires, the kinds of things that kids who are, you know, running amok can do. I feel extremely fortunate that there was no lasting harm to anybody that at least that I know of. You know, I didn't kill somebody driving, you know, drunk or high in a car. My little siblings weren't harmed. I allowed people in my house during these parties who were later just convicted of horrible, you know, crimes. They were just terrible people, much older, but they were the kids hanging around downtown, the townies. And so I feel really lucky that my little siblings didn't come into any harm. But, you know, some people aren't so lucky. I just, I honestly feel just, it's pure luck. Right. I was reading your book as I was going back and looking at my own childhood and it was so similar where, you know, you're drinking, well, for me, it was just like drinking so much 
and you know the wonderful decision of like you know I should probably be the one to drive because my friend tripping on acid and so it's probably a good idea and I just think oh my gosh I am so lucky as well you know the same thing yeah we, there's no seatbelt laws I mean mothers against drunk drivers was like in the 80s I think early 80s and so there wasn't seatbelt laws there wasn't a consciousness in the culture that there was a lot of kids driving drunk even though of course there were terrible accidents we knew we all knew of people who had you know gotten really harmed but yeah no I feel very fortunate it's I'm glad that there's more controls on that for kids because you know Drunk kid behind a two-ton vehicle is not a good combination. No, no, not at all. So you got to this point where it got so bad, the despair, the loneliness, the isolation that you reached out for help. Yeah, I mean, it started with just feeling like the friends that I was hanging around with, all, our entire conversation was about drugs. We didn't have any depth. We had no conversation. And as a person who always loved books and stories and learning, it just finally caught up with me that it just was so unpleasant. Just like I went home one night and I went down to my sister's room and she was in there with her boyfriend. She was a year older than me. And I was just bawling and weeping. And I said, I hate my life. I hate myself. I hate my friends. I just, you know, that's how a teenager expresses it. I mean, I'd be more particular right. now about it, but right. you know, it's just, I felt something was terribly wrong. I did not like myself or, or what I was doing and that she was the first person I talked to. And then I eventually, you know, just some things happened sort of serendipitously. My boyfriend, who was also the person I was doing drugs with, broke up with me. And that made me very sad because I did love him. But that sadness, I think it tapped into the sadness of my parents splitting up. And I finally went to my mother and I said, I, I want to see a counselor. I think I need to see a counselor. And she did arrange for me to see a counselor, which I paid for with my own money from my after school job. And I, I felt like I had to do that as part of the penance or whatever for all that I had done. Which is to me, you know, at the time too, I don't know how, like I'm thinking back, you know, the seventies and counseling, and I guess I was starting to really start to, you know, I guess addiction treatment was starting to grow and become bigger. And so you had that opportunity, but what also really surprised me is that you decided to pay for this yourself. Yeah. I mean, I was working in my, so this was my junior year of high school and I was working almost full time at a gas station, 35 hours a week, and then some weekend shifts. And my mother arranged for me to see my parents' marriage counselor and I would see him at night and I would pay him in cash. I mean, it was kind of, you know, it was under the table basically. And she was on once a week. And my boss knew and he let me have time off work. He was actually really good about that. And it was $20, which they would be like maybe 80 or something. But it was only a quarter of what I earned every week. That's also what I would have been spending on drugs anyway. So in the very first time I sat down and talked with him, it was enormously helpful. So I didn't mind paying that $20 at all. I felt like I'm going here and this is helping. I really looked forward to going and I did go to see him for about a year. Um, it took me that long to kind of wean off drugs and to you know, understand that I didn't have to hang around with these friends and to figure out who I was. I remember talking about like, who am I? I don't know who I am. So that you know, that identity crisis thing. I don't know if that's still around, but it was definitely something that a lot of teenagers felt in the 70s. There was this book called Why Am I Afraid to Tell You Who I Am, which was a, a mega bestseller. So yeah, I think as a country, we sort of lost our identity as well. You know, it's a sort of larger thing going on. Right. Yeah, I got that from here in reading the book too. I got that kind of sense that the whole society in a way was a little bit lost. We didn't know who we were at the time. And in a way, it's like your journey mirrored that as well. 
I think so. I mean, there was this whole sense of morality that we had, this immoral leadership. You know, I think that was a real crisis for the country. But if you look at studies and surveys on college campuses and, and young adults, there was a sense of despair in the mid-70s. And because of all that had happened, the Vietnam War and Watergate, and who do you trust and what's happening, and the whole sort of peace and flower, love each other of the 60s, just kind of it just dissipated in the things that happened in the 70s. And as a culture, you know, who were we? And, you know, I mean... I think the culture impresses on teenagers in a way that teenagers don't necessarily understand, but they act out. The one th- episode that I think is was surprising to me when I was researching the book is there's a moment in the book where my boyfriend, we're at a party and he's down in the basement of this house and he finds some gunpowder and he says, you know, I'm going to make a bomb. I'm going to put it in the school. And I, as I was writing it now, 40 years later, I was thinking, why did he say that? And I remembered people called him bomb scares. And when I researched that time period, I saw holy cow, that was what was going on in the culture. There was all kinds of, you know, mostly radical leftist groups bombing buildings, and they were happening even in our bomb scares, even in our hometown. So, and then they didn't happen again after 78 ever. So that was something where the culture, I think, was sort of by, you know, by osmosis or something affecting our actions and our thoughts. Right. So another question I wanted to ask you was, it sounds like for you, there was a part of you, and not, I think some people aren't, I don't know if it's luck or what it is, but there was a part of you that had this courage to reach out or had this insight that you needed support. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, and it was kind of hard for me because growing up, my mother was always like, be self-sufficient. You know, we were doing our own laundry at, you know, the age of 12 and, you know, fight your own battles. She was too busy, to, you know, to run out and, to, and hold our hand and everything. And so we were taught to be very self-sufficient. So asking for help for me meant that I really was at a low point. And because people had reached out to try and help me. I had a couple teachers that said, what's happening with you? Your grades are dropping. You're hanging around these people. I think it must have really been a sign that I just didn't know where to turn at all. I didn't know what to do. And I really had hit that bottom. And so my mother had introduced me to to psychology and counseling when I was earlier in ninth grade, before I started getting into drugs, she noticed I was very moody. And so she wanted me to see a counselor. And so I did go twice and, and nothing really happened. But I knew that that was there. I knew that that was an option. So that's what I asked for. I don't know if I hadn't known about like psychologists and psychiatry. My mother always read Psychology Today and that magazine was always around. I'm not sure. I mean, I probably would have gone to her for help too, but I'm not sure what that would have been. Although there were many kids in our school who were, you know, if they were freaking out on angel dust or other drugs, they would go to this private psychiatric facility that was a few miles from my house. My family couldn't afford it up, but some of my friends did end up in there actually. Right. Another part, a really another powerful part of the book to me too, kind of going back on that is later in the book, you reflect back from, you know, more of a current time looking back at this. And, you know, there's, I don't know if it, there's a melancholy too in looking back on that, but then there's also kind of a feeling of like, wow, you made it through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think You know, looking back, it was hard. Some of those things were hard to face up to, but I really wanted to give voice to that teenage girl that I was and also give voice to other teenage girls and to sort of show the heart, what's in the hearts and minds of a teenage girl, you know, so that maybe there's something that we can all, that's useful maybe for understanding those, you know, girls' experiences. So, you know, it was difficult to look back, but at the same time, and I did have to figure out, well, 
how do I deal with this shame? Do I forgive myself? But I learned a lot about the adolescent brain and neurobiology. And, you know, so yeah, it was definitely cathartic to look back as well, to finally let go of this through this book. Once I wrote the whole story and then, you know, spent a couple of years revising and editing it. But once I got that whole story out, there was a release. There was a big release. It was out of me. And that's that. And now I'm going to make it public. <laughs> so this is a public confession. And but I did that in hopes of helping other people understand. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's so such a big part of our journey, right? And to be able to share that to other people. I mean, I think your book really captures that adolescent struggle when we're a little bit lost and we don't know where to go. I mean, I, it resonated with me so much because, you know, I was about the same age when I got help. I was 17, you know, and been, you know, drinking all the time and just, you know, pot. We didn't get into angel dust or anything like that. Luckily, um, thank God I didn't grow up in the opiate epidemic. That scares me. Oh, I think, yeah, I feel the same way. You know, I think if it was there, I would have done it, but it wasn't. So, but that feeling, you really capture it. And I think for anybody out there who wants to understand that, I think this, I think your book really, really does that really well. And I appreciate you writing it. And I appreciate you putting yourself out there for other people to hear the story. Yeah, I mean, thank you for saying that. I just, that was my hope, really, to mainly to sort of give some insight, if possible, into what was going on. And there's, the thing is, there's a lot of people, so I teach now at a university, so I'm this associate professor, and I have all these colleagues, you know, and now I gave a reading there the other night from the book, and I, in the middle of the reading, I just had to look up and say, you all didn't know this about me. <laughs> you know, nobody, no one knows this is in your past. But the other thing that's been happening when I've been giving readings is that people have coming up to me and they've been emailing me and Facebook messaging me and saying, this is my story or this is my sister's story or this happened in my family and thank you for sharing. There's a lot of people carrying around those things. I mean, we've gotten over it. We figured out how to get ourselves out of it or get the help we needed to get ourselves out of it, but it's still in us. And so releasing it, I don't know, maybe reading the book, people feel they can release their own past too and own up to it and sort of say that's that happened. And I think it just makes us more understanding of everyone who's going through something when we realize that so many people do, even the people we don't suspect had gone through something like this. Right. No, it, it really, in a way, as I read it, and I was just finishing it yesterday, so I'm like still in the freshness of reading it, but it reminded me of a time, you know, when in some of the darkest moments, you know, where we would just listen to like Pink Floyd, The Wall over, or I would anyway, over and over and over and that melancholy of just that angst and, and you captured it. But at the same time, being able to see the way out and see that you're out of that, you know, and appreciate that. So was yeah, I think there's something unique. Now, you had a similar experience of having this addiction in high school. And the opioid crisis now, we know, is affecting people in their 20s to 40s. That's the big group. I'm not saying that it's not happening in high school. It is because I have students writing about it. But when you're in that developmental stage and you're doing these drugs, I think it just adds a layer of confusion to the whole thing. You don't even have the psychology or the intellect yet to really figure out what's happening with yourself. Yeah. And you can kind of feel like you missed some of your development or your childhood. Once you kind of get out of it and you start to grow and I guess nurture yourself and learn and grow and stuff, you kind of realize you missed a big chunk of it in a way. It's really true. That's, I, I agree with that. I mean, it, you know, the part of the reason I've subtitled it a delinquent girl, but is the other meaning of delinquent, which is late. Because if you don't spend those years of 10th grade, 11th grade, 9th grade, all those years, 
you know, learning how to interact with other people, learning how to speak in class and raise your hand and be confident, how to think, how to be social, you know, it just, it gets delayed. And so, and then, the, you know, it wasn't a clean line of quitting. So the book sort of truncates it at a certain point, but it did take me a few more years because to really pull back from drugs and drinking, because you go to college and you're in a party atmosphere, there was still lots of drugs around. There was, you know, LSD, acid, there was crystal meth came in, cocaine, this is the early 80s, cocaine came in. So, you know, I did end up falling into that a little bit. It wasn't like the daily habit I had with PCP. It wasn't like what I would say is probably kind of an addiction, or at least a very strong habit. But I didn't stop all that for a couple more years. Probably, I finally, you know, maybe when I was 20, maybe my junior year in college, I finally was like, I'm done with this. You know, I'm done with this. I'm excited about the intellectual pursuits and artistic pursuits. And I've met some people who are interesting to talk to and not just, you know, partying, you know? Yeah. You kind of found your way out of it, you know, kind of grew your way out of it. I don't know. I mean, very similar. Yeah. I think grow is part of it. I mean, if you, you know, you read these books that we know so much more now about the brain, the adolescent brain. And now we know that your brain isn't fully developed and that decision-making part of things until you're 24, 25, you know? So you have a teenager, you have this unique thing happening where, your hormones and the amygdala and things are causing you to want excitement and risks and thrill, but you don't have the prefrontal cortex, which is putting the brakes on, moral reasoning, long-term consequences of your actions, not yet developed. So as you are maturing, you know, you're learning, you start gaining those skills for, for caring for yourself, really. Right, definitely. And Maureen, I just want to thank you for coming on to the podcast and talking about it and sharing your book. Uh, if anybody's out there listening, I hope people are listening. What would you want to tell them? You know, I would want to just say, you know, if they're teenagers listening or people, young people are feeling that sort of awkwardness, confusion, like only they are having problems, you know, to reach out for help. And for adults, I would say, look around at the teenagers and you know, they may be needing help. They really may. And it's not going to be like just asking, do you need help? You have to stick with it. My teachers would say, does she need help? And then, you know, no, I don't need help. And then that's it. They quit. You have to keep at it because that's what it takes, I think. So asking for help is there's no shame in that at all. Ask for help. And if we can help, keep supporting people who are doing it. Thank you so much. Thank you. How can people find out more information about you? Yeah, they can go to my website, MaureenStantonWriter.com, where they can, the book is on Amazon. It's an ebook or audio. It's in hardcover. Should be in stores, libraries. Yeah, lots of ways to access that. So Awesome. And I will put that on the website as well, theaddictedmind.com, and have all your information there as well. And Maureen, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. Okay, what a great interview. I love talking to Maureen Stanton. That was wonderful. So you can find all the show notes and a link to her book at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 78. Once again, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you're enjoying the podcast, share it with a friend, join our Facebook group, go to facebook.com, type in the Addicted Mind podcast, click join. And don't forget, if you have some wisdom you'd like to share, please click on the tab on our website, share your story and share your wisdom. All right, everybody. I hope you have a wonderful day and I will talk to you on the next episode.
Oh, hey, it's Erin. And I'm Michaela, and we're the hosts of the Two Sober Girls podcast, and we are on a mission to spill the wild truth about sobriety. Forget the rosé all day cliche. Sobriety is flipping amazing. Absolutely. It's not just about quitting the drink. It's a gift you give yourself and your loved ones. So what are you waiting for? Break up with that old toxic relationship with alcohol and let us show you the possibilities. And here's the thing. Everything your precious heart desires becomes way easier without the influence of alcohol. We're not just two sober girls. We're also wellness coaches. We're here to show you how to optimize health, lifestyle, and beauty, feel sexy and alive as F. So stay tuned because we're rolling out new episodes every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts and trust us. They have your name written all over them. We can't wait to share the magic of sobriety and wellness with you. Subscribe to Two Sober Girls Podcast today and come follow us on Instagram for behind the scenes action and send us a DM. We can't wait to meet you.